As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So last week, we began the 22nd chapter of St. Luke's Gospel account, and within it, we saw the Last Supper, and we got about halfway through the chapter itself. I realized that we were already at an hour 20, and we stopped around verse 38. So, again, what we saw last week was the Last Supper as St. Luke depicts it. We saw the apostles debating amongst themselves who it was who was greatest, as well as who it was who was going to betray Jesus after Jesus announces that one of them will offer him up. We also saw at the very beginning of the chapter that the leaders of the Jewish people have finally gotten their way. And they found an opportunity to get rid of Jesus when Satan entered into Judas and Judas said that he would look for an opportunity when Jesus was apart from the multitude. Because remember, the leaders of the Jewish people have been afraid of the multitude. And that's what's been stopping them from getting rid of Jesus because they desire to keep their power and if they get rid of Jesus in a way that isn't in agreement with the people, well, then the people won't respect them, and then they'll lose the power that they so covet. So when we see Satan enter into Judas, that is, Judas give him his will over to the will of the evil one, the tempter, the accuser, the passion narrative begins to go into play leading to the Last Supper after Peter and John were sent out to prepare the upper room. And then Jesus institutes the Eucharist, and last week we spent a lot of time talking about the symbol of the Eucharist and what that means, and rather than repeating myself for another 35 minutes on that, uh, you can go back to the prior recording and listen to my ramblings incoherently on that. And after we saw the Eucharist instituted, again, we saw these debates among the apostles. We saw the prefiguration by Jesus of Peter's coming denial of him, where Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And yet, we also see in Jesus' words there that in Peter's denial, 
when he turns back, when he returns, so there's a prefiguration of his repentance, of his return, it will be his duty to strengthen the brethren, that is, strengthen the church. So there's a lot going on within the Last Supper itself, leading up to where we are when Jesus will leave the Supper and go to the Mount of Olives to pray, as was his custom each night. Because again, we need to remember him, Jesus says, and the apostles as they've been in Jerusalem. They haven't been staying in a house. They've been camping out on the Mount of Olives this whole time and then teaching during the day in the temple. And then the final detail that I forgot to include that we need to remember within the Passion narrative, but also leading all the way up to the Ascension at the very end of St. Luke's Gospel account, is the comparison with the Exodus that is taking place. If we remember all the way back to the Transfiguration, when Jesus was talking on the Mountain of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, he was said to have been talking about his coming Exodus. And that ties us again all the way back to the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were liberated by the Egyptians, led through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness by God, eventually after 40 years into the Promised Land. So by placing these events right at the time of the Exodus, the Passover, what we see are these parallels. Because in the same way that God led his people through the Red Sea, and again, if we remember what water is symbolic of, as we see in our baptism, it's symbolic of death. So as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea into the desert, which is a desolate place, and eventually into the Promised Land, we see that they have a passing through death into life. In the same vein, when Christ offers his life for the life of the world, as we're about to see in him being finally offered up, he is passing through death, and on the third day when he raises from the dead, he tramples down death by itself and offers all of us, through life in him, an opportunity of eternal life. So we see this reality of life and death playing out, but it's transfigured in Christ. Hence why we were first referring to his coming exodus at the transfiguration itself. Because what the transfiguration reminds us of is the resurrected state, is the state that we are intended to be in, because it's totally different and yet recognizable. Remember, Jesus is said to shine brilliantly during the transfiguration, so he's not recognizable in the same way that he's not going to be recognizable after he raises from the dead. And yet he will be recognized when he reveals himself. And when he reveals himself, he will be seen by his followers as the same Jesus, the Christ, who is with them. And yet he'll be slightly different. These are great mysteries that we're trying to wrap our head around, but this is kind of the context we need to put our mind in as we're looking at the Passion. Because the Passion is not just a narrative of a man who is persecuted and then killed. Rather, the Passion itself is the center of our faith. The passion itself shows us how God, who has become man, willingly offers his life for life of the world. 
And why that's important is because through his willing self-offering, entering into death, and then raising on the third day, he shows us the pathway to our eternal life in him. So we need to remember the Exodus. Because in the example of the Israelites who passed through death into life, we see as Christ passes into death, when he enters on the other side and resurrects on the third day, what we are offered is more than just a promised land. We're offered the whole of creation transfigured in him. So with all my rambling out of the way, we're going to begin chapter 22 with verse 39, where we left off last week. And he came out and went, as was the custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down, and prayed, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there's a few things that we see here. First of all, of note, we are using the Revised Standard Version of the Gospel here. And within the Revised Standard Version, as we could see in verse 42, there's a gap. So we're missing verses 43 and 34. Verses 33 and 34 within the New King James go as follows. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we might be asking ourselves, okay, why is this redacted within the Revised Standard Version? And the reason for that is because within academic circles, they're constantly looking for the most common, and also oldest manuscripts we can find. And with these two verses, it's very clear that they are later editions. Now, within our tradition, these two verses have been welcomed into the greater canon. And we'll get into why that is the case a little bit later. But I think this is a good example for us to realize how our tradition plays out. Because even though these two verses may not have been written by the pen of St. Luke, they still speak to the overall message of what he's trying to get across within his account of the gospel. So from our perspective, it's not a problem when we see verses like this pop up. Because they have not only been received in the church, but they're speaking to the reality that's here within this broader message. So what is that reality? Well, we see in verse 39, when he came out, he went as was the custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So what's happening here? We're setting the stage. We're leaving the upper room, and we're entering the Mount of Olives where Christ will have what is known in the West as the agony in the garden. And within verse 40, we see when he comes to the place, he says to them, 
pray that you may not enter into temptation. What is this temptation? Well, if we remember from last week when we were talking about the first half of the chapter, the assaults of Satan are on all of the apostles, not only on Peter and not only on Judas, who he's entered into. Rather, it's the desire of Satan to accuse and lead astray the whole flock of those who are following Christ. So when he's warning them, what he's saying here is, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What is that temptation? Well, that temptation is going to be to fall away, and fall away in an ultimate sense. Because we need to remember, as we're going to see when Peter comes around, all of the apostles in some way, shape, and form fall away from Christ. When Christ appears to them in the upper room, even John, who within our tradition we believe stayed with Christ all the way to his death, even he's hiding in the upper room with the rest of the apostles. He's not out preaching the crucified Lord. So in one way or another, all of the apostles flee. All of the apostles fall away. So what we're seeing here is that they need to pray that they may not fall into temptation. That is, fall into the temptation to ultimately fall away in the same way that we're going to see Judas. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we compare Peter and Judas in the section where Peter betrays Jesus. But it's important for us to realize that all of us, including the apostles, have these temptations. There are these animating forces and powers that are trying to pull us away from the path that we were going down. And yet, what do we need to do? We need to pray for strength. We need to pray and offer up these weaknesses to God so that way he can transfigure them and give us the strength that we need. And so we see in verse 41, when Jesus withdrew from them, about a stone's throw. So what's that telling us? It's telling us that he's separating himself again from the apostles, as he's done every time he's gone to pray, and yet he's still in sight from them. He's only a stone's throw away. And so this indicates to us that Jesus is still in their presence. And then he kneels down and he begins to pray. And in his prayer, what we see is Christ's dual natures or dual wills. Because when he says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. So what we see here is that his human will, because again, we need to realize that Christ is fully God and fully man. His human will is crying out in a sense. It's not crying out in fear and trembling, which is why calling this the agony in the garden, as I mentioned earlier, is a little problematic in a sense. Because if it was the agony in the garden, well, that, at least within our English mindset, may indicate that Jesus is, for some reason, not willing or afraid. And yet, what we see here is that even though his human will is crying out because it fears death, or rather, does not want to die, what Christ is fully doing is offering up that reality and adhering to his divine will. That is the will he shares with the Father. Because when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, we see this willing submission. 
we see this willing offering in spite of the reality that he's dealing with. As human beings, we also share in a human will. And that's where we have this adversity to death. We're afraid to die. We don't want to die. Everything within us cries out against death. Why? Because it's not natural for us to die. This was not the intended state for us. And yet, in the example of Christ, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to offer up that reality and submit our will fully to the will of the Father. Now, we don't share in that divine will. That divine will is not innate within us as it is in Christ. So this is a little more of a struggle for us. In fact, not a little, but extremely. But the reality that we see is that Christ will be our advocate, that Christ will be there for us. Because if we look at, again, the New King James Version, where we hear, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Well, if an angel, a messenger of the Lord, appears to Jesus to strengthen him, then in Jesus sending us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, how much greater is the strength that we have? We're given a comforter. We're given someone to guide us and be with us and strengthen us in all of our hardship and all of the adversity that comes our way. And yet, we see in verse 44, again, from the New King James Version, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So even though Christ is submitting this human will to the will of the Father, there's this lashing out. There's this sweating profusely that's happening. And yet we need to remember that he's actively being strengthened. And because he willingly submits his will to the will of the Father, that is his human will to the divine will that he shares with the Father, he's able to make this whole sacrifice. This is a reminder for us again that even though it will be a struggle for us to submit our human will to the will of God, we are given advocates. We are walking in the footsteps of Christ, and we are also being actively strengthened by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So when we are struggling, this doesn't mean that intellectually we just kind of hide that struggle. Rather, we need to experience that agony. We need to be able to experience our bodies lashing out in a sense. Yet we need to do that peacefully. Because if we turn around and we start beating ourselves up psychologically because our nature is crying out, well then all we're doing is continuing to add more unnecessary adversity to our life. So yes, we may be in agony when we're trying to submit our will to the will of God. But that's where we need to humble ourselves and pray for peace and pray for strength so that way we can continue to do what we were created to do. And we see in verse 45, after this, he rose from prayer and came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. 
And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here for a moment we see that the disciples have fallen asleep for sorrow. They've fallen into temptation. We hear in St. Matthew's Gospel, the flesh is willing, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so when the apostles or disciples rather fall asleep, this isn't an ultimate sense of them falling away. Yes, they've fallen into temptation, but there's still time. And that's why Jesus says to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is again pointing us to the reality that he's talking about temptation to fall away in an ultimate sense. Because again, throughout our life, we may fall away. There are going to be plenty of obstacles and adversities that come our way, and we're not going at times to move in the direction that we should. But this shouldn't be a reason for us to fall into despair. Because again, we have so many different factors that are powers that are pulling us in different directions. But we're still called to humble ourselves. We're still called to reorient ourselves. And we're called to look at the example of Christ who willingly submits his human will to the will of the Father with which he shares. Because when he does so, as we remember, he's being strengthened, showing us that we are being strengthened as well. Because he's not going to abandon us. Rather, he has sent us his comforter, his spirit of truth, the third person of the Holy Trinity, who dwells within each and every one of us motivating and strengthening us down our path towards life in him and ultimately the kingdom of the Father. And yet our bodies will cry out. Life will continue to be difficult and we will continue to struggle. But we need to willingly submit our will to the will of the Father so that way we don't add more undue struggle into our life. Is the more we fight against the will of the Father, the more we experience the harshness of this life without his shelter and protection. And this isn't because he's withholding it from us, but it's because in our free will, we are choosing to walk in the other direction. We are choosing to add more undue burdens to our life. So it's important for us to remember that even Christ struggles, even Christ's human will is crying out so that he may not die. But ultimately, Christ says, not my will, but your will, Father. So moving on to verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were about him saw what, <clears throat> what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. When Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the, peop of the temple and the elders, who had come out against him? 
Have you come out as against the robber, with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this in your hour, and the power of darkness. So we see that while Jesus is speaking to the disciples, as warning them again to rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, leading them, drew near the Jesus to kiss him. So Judas is one of the twelve. Judas sat at the Last Supper with Christ. And yet, he has offered up his true salvation for the things of this age, for an exchange of money, for mammon, as we've talked about in the past. And when Judas finds the time where Jesus will be separated from the multitude, he leads the chief priests and the leaders of the people to Jesus, so that way they may imprison him and they may bring him to judgment. And yet we see, how is Judas going to identify Jesus? Well, we hear that he's going to identify him with kiss. But within St. Luke's account of the gospel, we hear this kiss never comes, because Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So here again, Jesus is showing us that he is aware of the thoughts and intentions of those around him. Because again, Jesus is God. And in seeing what Judas is going to do, he states the obvious. He reflects this intent back at Judas. And what we see is in the commotion, in him stopping Judas from identifying him, and yet this crowd being around ready to seize him, the disciples see all of this and... They say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? This is a callback to the end of the Last Supper, where there was the debate, or rather, there was the debate over the sayings of Jesus when he, Jesus told the apostles to take a sword to guard themselves. And as we talked about last week, when we spent a lot of time with that section, Jesus wasn't talking about a physical sword in the same way that he wasn't talking about physical money bags or sandals that they needed to take with them. Rather, what he was telling them was the time is coming for temptation. The time is coming for further struggle. So you need to be able to take the provisions that you have right now with you. And if you don't have something to defend yourself with, as represented in the sword, then you need to sell your outer garment, that is, the less important garment that you carry with you, so that way you can acquire something to defend yourself with. And yet, we saw with the apostles then, they didn't understand. So Jesus said, it's enough, enough of this. Now is not the time for me to teach you further in this matter. Rather, you're going to understand the reality that I've been talking about, after all of these things come to pass. And yet we see here in verse 50, rather in verse 49, that this misunderstanding is still taking place. So they ask him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Because again, we need to remember, they presented before Jesus these two swords, saying that, look, Lord, look, this is what we have. We don't only have one, 
but we've acquired two. And we hear, before Jesus can even answer in verse 50, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, if Jesus was telling the apostles in the upper room that they needed to get a sword to physically defend themselves, these verses here, starting with verse 51, wouldn't make sense. Because Jesus says no more of this. And then he touches the ear of the servant and heals him. If Jesus, again, was telling the apostles that they needed to acquire a sword to defend themselves with, well then, none of this would make sense. Why would he be willingly offering himself in this case? But rather, our true defense is Christ. Our true defense is the Spirit that dwells within us. The Holy Spirit, again, the third person of the Trinity. And so, as Jesus is calling his apostles to this higher calling, he's also showing them in action what this means. So Jesus then addresses the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders directly, because they all came out against him. And he states, Have you come out against me as a robber, with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple... You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. So what we see here is how the leaders of the people are treating Jesus. He's not shown any signs of violence, and yet they've come after him as they would come after a robber. They brought swords and they brought clubs to put him down if he tries to flee. And yet... Jesus points out the obvious, and that's been, he's been with them day after day in the temple, and yet they didn't lay hands on him then. Rather, they waited for the time when the multitude would be separated from him, when there wouldn't be a riot. They came now at this hour, and this hour is being motivated, as we've been talking about, by the powers of darkness, by Satan, by the evil one. So it's showing us again that there's more at play here than just the whims of human beings. Yes, it is the chief priests and the leaders of the people who are coming out against Jesus. But we need to ask ourselves, who is the motivating spirit behind their actions? Who is it that they have enslaved themselves to? And the reality is that they have become slaves to the spirits of this age. They have become slaves to their power and desire to keep their authority. And this has blinded them to who Jesus truly is. And they have justified to themselves that he is this evil man that they need to rid themselves with. To the point where they've come out against him as if he was a robber with swords and with clubs. Neglecting all the while that he's been with them, defenseless in the temple. And out of their fear of losing their status... They haven't seized him. So this is a reminder to us of the blindness that we may be able to fall into when we live for the things of this age. Because the leaders of the people aren't evil in themselves. They weren't created evil. Rather, they were created in the same image that we are all created in, the image of God. In fact, they were also called to a higher calling, 
because the leaders of the people were called to lead the people. Well, where are they leading the people? They're leading the people to God. And yet, they're rejecting in these actions that calling, because they so desire to keep their status that they see Christ, who is the only sinless one, and they treat him as though he's the chief sinner. So this should be a reminder to us that when we become so entrenched with our own perceptions of how the world should be, of how our status is within the eyes of men, that we need to reorient, that we need to recontextualize our life. Because if we're living for any glory that isn't the glory of God, then we're off track in the sense Yes, there's authority, and yes, there are things that are being entrusted to us, but we need to remember that these are gifts. And if they're all gifts, that is our status, our possessions, you name it. If all of these things are gifts, then what are we supposed to do with them? What are we supposed to offer them up to the grantor of these gifts to us, to his glory? So if God is the creator of all, then he is the one that we were making this offering to. And in doing so, what we're doing is becoming participants in his saving acts in humanity. Because Christ has come to lead all, including the creation, to salvation. And we are co-workers in that. Because as we offer up the gifts in the creation that have been given to us, we're offering them up so they may be transfigured in Christ in the same way that we're offering up the whole of our life so our lives may be transfigured in Christ. So it's important for us to wrap our head around that we too can fall into the temptation to see Christ within this negative light because a life in Christ oftentimes can conflict with the life that we're living centered in this age. And we can do all sorts of intellectual somersaults to justify why we should be living for the things of this age rather than offering all up for life in the age that has come. So let us be attentive to our motivations. Let's look for clarity in all that we're doing. So that way we can ask the central question of what is God trying to form in me? What is God calling me to do? And how am I to offer up all of the gifts that have been entrusted to me to the glory of God so that way all may be transfigured in his light? So moving on to verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a maid, seeing him as he sat in the light and gazed at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. 
But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So as Jesus is being seized and led away, being brought into the high priest's house, we see that Peter follows at a distance. Now, within St. Luke's account of the gospel, we see a slight difference from St. Mark's account. So in St. Mark's account, as we might remember, everyone fell away, and Peter was one of the last disciples to follow after Jesus. Here we see that this mass falling away of the disciples has not occurred. And rather, we'll see at the end of the crucifixion that along with the murderers, they will be standing at a distance watching what has transpired. With all that being said, who is the key character that we see here? Well, it's Peter. And Peter's following at a distance. So the same Peter who with zeal said that he would go even to his death after Jesus is now kind of one foot in and one foot out. And we hear in verse 55 that when the people waiting for Jesus' trial kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they all sat down together, waiting for the sentence. And rather than going into the trial and offering up his life, as Peter said that he would, what does he do? Well, he sits outside in the courtyard, along with all of these other people. And yet, we see a maid that is a female servant sitting and looking at Peter notices that this man is different, that this man must have been with Jesus. And she states, this man also was with him. But then we hear Peter denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. Peter may think that he's getting off scot-free here. Because again, we need to remember that women couldn't testify in court against people. In the same vein, a slave woman, a servant woman, had no status. So even though she accuses Peter of being with Jesus, in his quick denial, he can perceive that he's gotten off. And yet we hear a little while later, someone else saw him, this time a male servant. And he states, you also are one of them. Now, now fear is entering into Peter. And he states, man, I am not. This is the second denial of Peter. And we see a ramping up. We can get into Peter's mental state and the fear that must be creeping in. Because now someone's accused him who can bring him before court. Now someone's accused him who can have him turned over to the authorities along with Jesus. And then we hear within St. Luke's account about an interval of an hour goes by. And as this time goes by, a third person insists, certainly this man is also with him, for he is a Galilean. We hear in other gospel accounts that it's Peter's accent that singles him out. And yet, what do we hear in verse 60? But Peter said, 
man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was speaking, the cock crowed. The rooster crowed as Jesus told him it would. And yet, St. Luke does something very interesting here. He gives us a detail that you don't see in the other Gospels, which is that the judgment that befalls Peter, that makes him realize what he's done, isn't only from hearing the rooster. Rather, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words the Lord said, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. So there's eye contact that's made between Jesus and Peter. And his innocence and truth is reflecting right at Peter and his fallenness as he's falling away. And yet what do we hear Peter do? Well, he leaves. Again, he's had one foot in and one foot out. And now he's gone out into the darkness. He's been warming himself by the light, clinging from a distance to Christ. And yet now he goes out. And he's said to have wept bitterly. It's in these tears that we see the foundation being laid for the true repentance of Peter is in seeing Christ and experiencing the judgment of the sin he has committed, what we see in Peter's tears that there's a pathway open for his coming redemption, a pathway that's already been prefigured when Jesus said that when you turn again, when you return to me, it'll be your responsibility to strengthen the brethren. Now we need to compare Peter with Judas is although we don't hear it within St. Luke's Gospel account, we will hear what happened to Judas within the Acts of the Apostles. And Judas, in the same vein as Peter, when he saw what he did, he felt remorse. He felt saddened. He was overcome by grief. And yet, we need to look at the actions that follow both of these individuals. Peter returns to the upper room to be with the brethren. Where Judas, in despair and utter despondency, takes his own life. Now this is showing us that although we may have emotions associated with repentance, with sorrow, with mourning, we need to also ask ourselves, what are the actions that we are carrying out that are being motivated by these emotions? If sorrow and weeping is an indication that we've missed the mark, well then, what are we being called to do when we're experiencing sorrow, when we're experiencing this bitter weeping as we see with Peter? Well, we're being called to get back on track. We're being called to return to the house of the Father. And this is why within the scriptures we see the motif of weeping is associated with repentance. Because those who are weeping are those who are opening themselves up to the salvation being offered to them by their Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. And yet we can also fall into sorrow and then continue down the rabbit hole of despair 
Because when we become enamored with sorrow and fixate upon it, it seems as though there's no way out. But that's missing the point. That's missing the broader reality that we're being called to. Is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted as we hear the Beatitudes. So yes, we are to experience the whole totality of human emotion, but we can't let emotion rule us. Because in the same way that we were talking about with our human will versus the will of God, if we live exclusively for our human will, we will miss the true revelation and glory of being able to be participants in the divine will of God. So whenever we realize that we've missed the mark, as we see with Peter and Judas, we need to ask ourselves, why is it that I am experiencing this immense sadness? And when we've grasped that reality, we need to use that emotion not as something that we fixate upon and get stuck in, because that will only leave us despondency and despair. But rather, we need to use that emotion to indicate how we are to get back on track. We can't just stay in the same place that we're in. We're always called to be moving forward in our life in Christ. So when we struggle, when we miss the mark, and when we fall off path, we need to truly acknowledge where we are. We need to, in a sense, dwell for a moment in that bitter weeping. But we can't stay there. Rather, we need to repent. We need to reorient and get back on track towards the life we are called to live in Christ. So moving on to the final section of this week's chapter starting with verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus mocked him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and asked him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they spoke many other words against him, reviling him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us, but he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God, then? And he said to them, You say, I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So as Jesus is being led away, what do we see? Those who are holding him are mocking him, and they're beating him. And they also blindfold him and ask him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So in their mockery, we see that the crowd of people have become a mob. They're descending into madness. They are no longer able to see the truth that he is offering them. Because they've blinded themselves to it, and now given over themselves to the spirit of this mob rule. And in giving themselves over to the spirit, again, rooted in these evil spirits that we've been speaking of, what are they doing? Well, they're twisting the words in the saving acts of Christ. 
they blindfold him and beat him and ask him prophesy who is it who struck you so this is a distortion of what jesus has been doing because jesus has been going around performing magic tricks and making prophecies rather he's been going around trying to reorient all of us make us attentive and ultimately transfigure the creation, returning it to the state it was always intended to be in. And yet, rather than seeing this reality, the people that have now devolved into a vicious mob strike him, and they speak many other words against him, reviling him all the while. And we see that when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, so the leaders of the people, and they led him away to their council. And when they were taking this council with him, they say, if you are the Christ, then tell us. And the reason for this is, again, they're looking for a way to accuse Jesus before the Romans. So the Romans will rid them of him altogether. So they can wash their hands of his blood and put it on the Romans, their oppressors. And if Jesus says, I'm the Christ, explicitly, well, that's an accusation of him. Because the Christ would be seen as an insurrectionist. He would be seen as a Jewish leader who's trying to lead the people in a revolt against their oppressors, the Romans. So Jesus flat out says, I am the Christ. Well, then the people, the leaders of the people, that is, would turn around and say, now we have him. Time for us to testify to the Romans. And so in Jesus' answer, we see him answer them in an indirect way. Because they ask him, if you are the Christ, then tell us. But he states, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. As we were talking about in the prior section, They've devolved into lunacy. They've devolved into madness. The mob mentality is now ruling. And the people have made themselves as wild beasts. Reviling Jesus and beating him and spitting on him and distorting his saving acts that he's done. Telling him to prophesy, who is it that struck you? And yet, here they ask, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Almost showing that well, if you tell us now that you are the Christ, then we'll receive you. But Jesus sees their guile. Jesus sees that this is now no longer the time for them to have an open heart. Because their hearts have calcified. They've closed themselves off to the possibility now of receiving him. And this is all a part of God's divine will. Because now is the time for his son to conduct his saving acts of salvation by being a willing sacrifice, by being a willing offering, offering his life for the life of the world. And this is why here he states, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Because they have closed themselves off to receiving his truth. They have closed themselves off from being participants in all that Jesus has been revealing to them up until this point. And yet, this will not be an end. 
This does not mean that divine will and plan for salvation is null and void as Jesus is being offered up by the hands of unrighteous men. Because in verse 69 we hear, But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So here again we see the Son of Man language calling us back to the book of Daniel. And in using it, Jesus is not referring to himself as the Christ, but rather he is showing them the reality that's unfolding. He's trying to reveal to them this deeper truth of who he is. Because he's not just a worldly Messiah. He's not come to liberate them from their earthly oppressors as they're now accusing him. Rather, he has come to offer all of us the same possibility of being seated with the Father, of being participants in his eternal kingdom. And we see the same imagery will take place when Christ ascends into heaven at the end of St. Luke's Gospel account. Because when Christ ascends into heaven, he is a seat, he's seated at the right hand of the Father promising us that what is being revealed here will come to pass. Because the significance, again, of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father is that we, all who are living a life in him and are striving to be eternal participants in that life, will be given the same glory. And yet, what do we see here? There's still a continued distortion and rejection of this truth. Because the leaders of the people turn around after he says all this and ask him plainly, Are you the Son of God then? They see this reference to the book of Daniel. They see this reference to a higher glory that Jesus is talking about. And yet, they still don't fully grasp it. Because they've closed their hearts off to the full reality of who Jesus is. The full reality that most people, including the apostles, have not received. Because most of the Jewish people, I believe all of the Jewish people, rather, because it's only Gentiles who identify Jesus as doing something that's beyond the prophet. All of his followers and all of the Jews see Jesus as either a worldly Messiah or a prophet. And it is here when they ask him, Are you the Son of God, then? That is another messianic title, title of Messiah. Jesus uses their words and says, You say that I am. In this we see that even though they're referring to Jesus as being a worldly Messiah within the line of David, the Son of God language is revealed to be something even greater when combined with the Son of Man language used in the prior section. Because Jesus is still trying to reveal to his people the truth of who he is, even though we have closed off our hearts to him, even though the mob now has devolved into madness and will not receive his truth. And in this statement, we see he doesn't give them a clear answer, but rather he calls them towards a higher understanding of a higher reality. Because in saying, you say that I am, He's not accusing himself of being any of the things that they have stated 
Because again, they want Jesus to declare himself to be this insurrectionist, to be this worldly king. And yet Jesus is still pointing to them through their own words to this higher reality. And yet, how does the chapter close? Well, they say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So the mob continues to distort the words of Christ. Rather than receiving the truth that he is trying to reveal to them. Now, as we prepare to look at the rest of the Passion narrative, and God willing, finish the Passion next week, and the following week begin the resurrection account of St. Luke's Gospel. It's important for us to realize all of these motivating factors that are coming in to Christ's saving passion. Christ is fully God and fully man. We've seen his human will and his divine will. We've seen him revealing the mysteries to us and calling us towards participation in this higher reality and life in him. And all of this is wrapped up within the motif of the Exodus. Because it's through all of these revelations of reality and life in Christ that we are able to pass through death into eternal life in him. For all of us who are put on Christ are Christ's. We are called to live a life in him. We are called to live a life modeled after the self-sacrifice that he is presenting here. And the reason why it's important that we realize that Christ is fully God and fully man is because if he is fully God, as we believe, well then he is fully aware of everything that is about to befall him. And yet he is willingly offering himself up. He is willingly participating in the divine will that he shares with the Father. Because ultimately that will is leading toward the possibility of our eternal salvation in him. A salvation that we have the choice to be participants in. So it's important for us to see where our human will may be conflicting with the will of the Father. Because Christ wills for us to have eternal life in him. Yet, when we're stuck on the things of this age, that is, when we have our eyes toward the ground rather than aimed upwardly, as Christ told his apostles they need to during one of his proclamations of his second coming within this gospel account, well, what happens is we become fixated on the lowly things that are passing away rather than holding our attention up to that which is beyond us, to that which we struggle to comprehend. And yet we're called to continue to go through the struggle. We're called to constantly be wrestling with God because that is faith. Faith is not an intellectual belief that we have and then we wash our hands of everything. It's not this one-time reception of Jesus as our Christ, our personal Savior. Rather, it's a continual struggle with God. It's a continual building of a relationship with Him. And as we continue down the path towards a life in Christ, 
that struggle gets a little easier. But that struggle only gets easier because we have a new context to look at our life through. Because as we mentioned during the agony in the garden, our flesh, our spirit, will cry out in the face of all of the hardship that will still assail us. And yet that is a call for us to offer up that passion, to offer up that hardship, so that it too can be transfigured by the will of God. So let's be attentive. Let's look at our life and try not to get stuck on the things that hold us back from life in Christ. But rather, let us use all of the gifts that we're being offered to the glory of God so that those gifts along with us may be transfigured in his light. Because ultimately, we're all aiming at the same target. And yes, we may fall short for a moment, but we need to remember that Christ is constantly praying for us in the same way that he's praying for Peter so that our faith may not fail in an ultimate sense. But for our faith not to fail in an ultimate sense, we need to continue the struggle. We need to continue repentance and reorienting ourselves towards Christ so that way we may be true participants in his glory. And in this willing submission to the will of God through living lives centered in repentance, realizing the wrong that we've done, but rather than being stuck in the mire of it, offering it up, getting back on track, and living the life that we are called to live. So to my prayer that we all pray for this clarity, so that we may see that we have a true advocate. Because if Christ so loved the world, that he offers himself up in this way, so that we all may have salvation in him, if we are to be called to be Christ-like, we are called to follow in his same footsteps. Offering up all that may hold us back, so that way we may be participants in his true glory. And in doing so, we may not only become participants in his light, but through our actions, we may shine that same light into the lives of those who are living in darkness. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. 
I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.